We're going to turn to the word of the Lord, but before we do that, we're going to turn to the Lord himself and seek his favor on his word this morning. Our Heavenly Father, we do ask that, again, you will help us to take in your word rightly, that what is read, what is proclaimed, what is received, how we respond to it, that all of these things may be well-pleasing in your sight, and that we might rejoice again in the resurrection that you have secured for us in Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. We're going to turn to Luke chapter 20 this morning, reading verses 27 through 40. Luke chapter 20, 27 through 40. In the Pew Bibles, this is titled, The Sadducees Ask About the Resurrection. Of course, they're going to be testing Jesus here about the resurrection. We're going to read those 14 verses there of Luke chapter 20, 27 through 40. Here's the word of the Lord. There came to him some Sadducees, those who deny that there is a resurrection. And they asked him a question, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies, having a wife but no children, the man must take the widow and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife and died without children. And the second and the third took her. And likewise, all seven left no children and died. Afterward, the woman also died. In the resurrection, therefore, whose wife will the woman be? For the seven had her as wife. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. For they cannot die anymore because they are equal to angels and are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the bush where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham and the God of Isaac and the God of Jacob. Now he is not God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Then some of the scribes answered, Teacher, you have spoken well, for they no longer dared to ask him any question. We do thank the Lord for his word be read today and ministered to us this morning. Congregation of our Lord Jesus Christ, absurd is the word that some use for those who believe in the resurrection. It's true that many today dabble in the idea of reincarnation, the idea that once you die, you go to live in the flesh of another or of something. 
and that such cyclical living takes place virtually in an infinite manner. But certainly the idea of the resurrection of the dead in our so-called enlightened age is viewed with smug amusement by many who sense that our supposed evolutionary movements should also carry away with them such primitive thoughts as the resurrection from the dead. We're too far advanced for such talk, for such thinking. It's too unreasonable. It's the talk of fools. Such talk is for those who refuse to face reality. Yet who really is the absurd? For what is life, after all, if death be its end? If death be its champion? So where's the hope there? Where's the purpose? Let's eat and drink because tomorrow we die? What does anything matter? What about all our thinking and all our dreams and all our building and all our choices and all our loves and all our passions? All the things that motivate us. Who cares? Who cares? Because they're meaningless. They mean nothing. All they do is lead to the dead end of death. They are absurd. You see, friends, it's not a belief in the resurrection that is absurd. It's a failure to believe in the resurrection of the dead that's absurd. Because such a failure makes everything, including our failure to believe in the resurrection and to posit that there is no resurrection of the dead, it makes all of those things meaningless. Such failure to believe in the resurrection, of course, isn't new. We just read about that. We read that in Jesus' time, there were these Sadducees, these religious leaders who thought that the resurrection of the dead was absurd. And that's why they came up with this absurd scenario of seven brothers. Six of them fulfilling their obligations to the wife of their brother to extend, ironically, to extend the name of their brother. But whose wife is he going to be in the resurrection? Or whose wife is she going to be in the resurrection, I should say? Who's, going to, who's she going to choose? Now, what an impossible dilemma that would seem to be. What an absurd scenario. But then, isn't the resurrection an absurd idea? Well, the Sadducees of Jesus' day were trying to put Jesus into a corner, just like they were trying to do that when it came to the paying of taxes. For Caesar, they said, you know, what about that? Should we pay and try to put him in a corner that way? Or asking him, you know, what's the greatest commandment? And you got ten of them, or if you wanted to expand on that, you could talk about all the commandments that fleshed out from those ten. And they were trying to put them in a corner, and here they're trying to do it again. Because to answer in any way would seem to put Jesus in a position where he was going to be wrong, and that he'd have to, in the end, deny the resurrection. Because that's what they wanted. At least these people did. But Jesus, again, turns the tables here 
And his reply shows not the absurdity in believing in the resurrection. He shows the absurdity of not believing in the resurrection. He who believes in the resurrection believes in the God of the living. And the person who doesn't believes in a God, whatever that God may be, of the dead. And you got one of the two. You're either walking down life believing in the God of the living, or you're believing in the God of the dead. And such a God is of no help to no one. There's an absurdity there. But the God of the living, he's the God who through his covenant promises fulfilled in Jesus Christ, he has this relationship with his people that is enduring and it's transforming. And that's attractive. And we want to touch on those two aspects this morning for your hope and for your comfort. It's an enduring relationship the God of the living has with his people. It's an enduring relationship. You notice that, that one of the ways that Jesus replies to the challenge of those who deny the resurrection, he reminds his challengers, he reminds them who trusted the authority of only the first five books of the Bible, because that's what the Sadducees did. They only believed in the first five books of the Bible. He's, he, he reminds them what the Bible says in those first five books. When God came to Moses at the bush, calling him to serve in the deliverance of Israel, how does he identify himself? He identifies himself as the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now it's interesting that in trying to challenge Jesus on the resurrection, the Sadducees used the law that had to do with enduring, with ensuring uh, that a person's name would endure in the promised land that God had given them. It was viewed as a curse from God if your family name, if your name could not be extended to your children. And so what was called the leveret marriage, that came from a Latin word lever, which means brother-in-law. So through the brother-in-law marriage, this was commanded in order that one's name in the land of promise would carry on. It would endure. But you notice here that God addresses himself as one who has an enduring relationship by name with those who have already died physically. He says again, I am. I am the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Not I was, I am. Their names have not been forgotten by God. Their names have not disappeared. Their names, yes, they continue to exist. They continue to live. They continue. They endure, even though they've died even though they die. But God still has a relationship with these who have died. 
in His gracious covenant with them. And so death hasn't been able to sever His relation with these people. Nothing in all creation could do that. And so their name endures because God doesn't forget them. They're still existing. Even though they've died physically, they live. They still live because God has made gracious covenant ultimately in the seed of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, in the risen Savior, Jesus Christ. God has made gracious covenant with people such as Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. And that covenant says, by my grace, I'm your God. And you're mine. And I will be your God. And you will be mine. And you belong to me, body and soul, in life and in death. And I promise to, to guard you, protect you, provide for you like a shepherd provides for his sheep. So that even though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, you need not fear evil because even there I'm with you. Because nothing can separate you from my gracious, covenantal, promised love. Your body may be in the grave, but your name and your soul endure and they remain with me. And because I love you, body and soul, your body will be raised one day because I don't forget my own and I don't forget any part of my own. You see, when it comes to God and His covenant relationship with His people, it's like Jesus says, all are alive to Him. And we could say today, for instance, when identifying the God of the Scriptures, that He is the God of any believer in Christ Jesus, the risen Savior, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep in Him. Our loved one in the Lord may have died physically, but the gracious covenant God is a God of the living in Jesus Christ. Abraham died physically. But God is still his God. And Abraham is still alive in Christ because God is the God of the living. Isaac died physically, but God is still his God. And Isaac is still alive in Christ for God is the God of the living. And Jacob died physically, but God is still his God. And Jacob is still alive in Christ because God is the God of the living. Loved ones in the Lord may have died, but God is still their God. And they are still alive in Christ because God is the God of the living. Those who die in the Lord have this gracious covenant relationship with the Lord that will not break. These are the gospel truths. Now just think what would have happened to Moses' morale if that wasn't true, that the God that came to him was the God of the living. What if, what if the God of the covenant of the promise was not the God of the living? If God is, is only the God of the dead, because people are following one or the other, but if he's, the only, if he's only the God of the dead, if he has no power to resurrect the lives of people spiritually as well as physically, then what good would that have been to Moses? I'm going to use you because I am the God of the living. 
If he would have come and said, I'm going to use you because I am the God of the dead, that would not have inspired. The God that you follow, and everybody follows some God, everybody does. Don't believe the atheist who says he doesn't follow anything because he follows himself. 80 years on the, on the planet, then he's gone, but he follows himself. The God that you follow or that I follow is only the God of the dead. Then he can be no help to people such as we or such as us who are, who are living. If he's the God of the dead, he's no help to us who are alive. And his promises to deliver would be worthless. And his promises to be with us through thick and thin, through life and death, would be useless. If he's only a God of the dead. His promises to deliver us from the deadness of our sins and raise us to new life and to lives of righteousness that we live for him, that would be absolutely impossible for you and me. Why would Joshua be strong and courageous in faith during his trying moments? Jesus said, well, I'll be with you wherever you go. Not if you're the God of the dead. The basis for you and me to be strong and courageous in faith during our most trying moments, the power to be strong and courageous in faith during those weakest moments would elude us. If God were not the God of the living, not only would the dead be helpless, because that's what we probably think of first of all, but so would we. Because we're living. Even if we trusted this God, because the God that we as living people would be trusting would be a God that cannot help living people. He'd be a God of the dead. And not for the living. But in Christ, under the gracious covenantal promises of God, whether you are alive on earth or you're waiting for the resurrection after death, your bond with, with the Lord never perishes. Ever. Either way... You're alive in Him. And His promises of new life, even in death, endure forever. And that's one reason why it is not absurd to follow the God of the living through Jesus Christ, the living and resurrected Savior. It's absurd not to follow Him. It's absurd not to trust Him. Because you can always count on this God. For His relationship with you is always living. It's, it, it always endures. It's the God of the living. But though this relationship never changes, even if death were to come, this relationship does transform. There's something about it that's always the same. And there's something about it that changes. One of the flaws in the argument of the Sadducees was that they believed that the supposed age of resurrection, this is what they presumed, would be no different 
from the age in which they were living right now. But Jesus corrects that error. He says, there's this age and there is the age to come. This age is very different from the age to come. And one of the reasons is brought up when it came to marriage. Now, one of the reasons in marriage, one man with one woman legally committed to one another is necessary today is because without the institution of marriage, the family of mankind cannot be maintained because of death. To marry, we hear Jesus say, and to be given in marriage is the order of this age. Right? They, they made all these presumptions about what the resurrection would be like and that it would be you no know, different than now. But Jesus says in verse 34, the sons of this age marry and are given in marriage. But those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and to the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage. So in this day and age for families to, to be extended, children need to be born. For a person's name to be extended, you need to have an heir. And God brought a solution that way. To marry and be given in marriage is the order of the day. Men are not to take women. They are given as precious gift by parents, by fathers, who protect their daughters from unscrupulous men and even to protect them, their daughters from themselves. When daughters are tempted to draw attention to themselves disrespectfully, that's what parents are there for, to protect their daughters. In this day and age, yes, for families to be extended, children need to be born for a name. Uh, to be extended in this age, you need to have an heir. You need to have children. Marriage, the God-given institution between one man and one woman solves that problem. And people who don't recognize that God-given solution that God has provided and wants to redefine what marriage is, all they do is reintroduce the problem that humanity can't survive in this age without God's solution of marriage. Because in one sense, we live in the age of death. And you try to redefine marriage as God has so ordained it, you're just playing into that. Because we are unable to endure physically in this age, and so marriage becomes very important in this age. The marrying and giving in marriage. But in the age to come, that's different. Marriage isn't going to be needed to keep the human race alive. Because death isn't going to be a problem anymore. There'll be no need for marriage any longer because the family of God will have been made complete. As members of that family, we read in our passage, they'll take on the resemblance of angels and the image of the divine as the heirs of 
of resurrection riches. In that sense, they're like the angels. In the sense that way. And in the age to come in Christ, you can't die any longer. And if you can't die any longer, you don't have to worry that your name will not endure. Abraham's does. Isaac's does. Jacob's does. All those in Christ do. In Christ you won't have to die again. Now there'll be people who will have to die again eternally, but that's because the God they followed in this age of death was not the God of the living, but the God of the dead. And they didn't turn from their hopelessness of sin and death to the promised fountain of righteousness and life in Christ. In absurdity. I mean, why would you want this? They wanted hopelessness in this age. They wanted death. And then they'll get it again eternally. Who wants that? It's absurd. But that's how people go. It's only when we know the transforming relationship of the God of the living in Jesus Christ that the hopeless absurdity of this age is removed. It's removed from our lives because we know that a new age is coming when, when death will no longer be a factor. But just glorious, transforming new life in the risen Jesus. And even now we find that transforming happening from as he's raised for our justification. As he gives unto us that, that new life to live for him in a transforming way before a dead world. That's what the God of the living does. And what a joy to know him in life and in death. To know him. Because you're either living right now with the God of the living as the one you're trusting and following, or you're living with the God of the dead. One or the other. And what a joy to know him in life and in death as the God of the living. A relationship so powerful that it endures even throughout our lives. And even in death. Relationships so transforming that hopelessness becomes hope. That's the Christian life. Not hopelessness, not wondering, not I hope so. Hope, as Christ has defined it, as the Word of God has defined it, sure, firm, steadfast, foundational. Death becomes life. This age plagued by death and sin is transformed into a new age, new age blessed by immortality and righteousness. We're to take joy in this hope this morning. We're not called to leave here in the sorrow as if we're living for the God of the dead. We're to take joy in this hope this morning through faith in Christ Jesus in the God of the living. And when we do, 
then the God that we're following is not the absurd God of the dead who could do us no good. The God that you follow is the sensible God of the living through the risen Jesus Christ called to be your Lord and mine. Is He alone? Along with the Father and the Spirit, the one only God, the God of the living, He alone can bring sense and meaning, help, and joy to your life. Enduringly. Transformationally. Amen. Let's take a moment to respond in prayer. <coughs> Heavenly Father, again, thank you when we're able, by your grace, to know the God of the living, not the God of the dead. There's no joy in following the God of the dead. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. It's absurd. For we're living and we follow a God who's not of the living. And we die and we die following a God of the dead and it goes nowhere. But to follow the God of the living who never forgets us, who never leaves us, who never forsakes us, who endures for time and eternity, for life and for the life to come, and who changes lives both now and forever. That's a God worth following. And we're glad that in Jesus Christ, the great I Am, we may find this one on whom we can always depend. Moses was able to do that long ago. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, but all those in Christ too, today, can believe that in following this God of the living, it's going to be a relationship that endures and that changes us completely as we need to be as followers, believers in Jesus Christ, the risen Savior and Lord. He is risen indeed, just as he said. Thank you for Jesus, dear Father. It's in his